And now, our feature presentation. I like it spooky. Welcome to I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. I'm Brian. I am Clint, and I am tired. How tired are you? Very tired. Last night, right before this recording, I guest acted at uh, Haunting in the Hills at Stagecoach Stop in Irish Hills, Michigan, a haunt uh, just about 10 miles down the road from me. First time I have haunted in three years. I was running and skipping and hollering and screaming all over this vast complex. And I could barely walk by the end of the night. Good God, I'm getting old. Ibuprofen, coffee, and hatred. That's what gets me through my days. And hatred. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of fun, you know, bringing out the uh, the old ghosts last night. And, uh, you know, speaking of ghosts, even though Halloween is sadly over, uh, we are still going to be haunted by the ghost of former co-host Jason. I don't think he's ever going to go away. Because... Uh, here in just a little bit, you're going to hear an interview that we conducted back in July. Because of the SAG after strike, the release of an interview that we conducted back in July, just before the strike began, um, and back when Jason was still on the show, it was put on hold. But we've got the green light. It's been given. And so coming up in just a little bit is an interview with Follow Her director, Sylvia Kaminer. But before we get to that, let's get to some news. So my news this episode is there's been a leak. Terrifier 3 is coming to theaters, and it's a Christmas movie. What do you think of that? Oh, 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 oh. It'll be fun. I'm interested. Again, we've talked about you know Terrifier and kind of the direction it's gone and where it might go. I really wanted to take that turn back to the dark side and kind of go back to the the darkness uh, and directness of the original. And, you know, you can't have Art the Clown in Christmas and go back to that. I, I don't think so. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, ahead of Terrifier 3, teaser slashing into theaters on November 1st. The film's first official poster art has leaked online, leaving us with no choice but to confirm the news. Yes, Terrifier 3 is a Christmas horror movie. I kind of feel like we haven't had a new Christmas horror movie for a while. No, I mean, we talk about them on the show. We went through a string in the show where it just, they were in like I Madman and Night of the Common. And, you know, they're just kind of indirectly Christmas movies. So that is something. Is this going to be indirect? Is it just going to take place during Christmas time so you see lights in a tree? Or is it going to be, you know, Art the Clown blowing up Santa Claus? Well, is he going to have, a, instead of a ba black trash bag, is, you know, is he going to have like a Santa bag full of crazy stuff to kill people with? Well, and also remember, we talked about the, the mean one before, which is kind of the horror version of the Grinch are the clown what David Howard Thornton um you know portrayed in that movie so uh, now I really I still haven't seen the mean one now I really have to see it so I can look for similarities so we've gotten some horror Christmas it's just not been mainstream out to the theater you know you got the mean one and then there was the killer Santa robot that was on shutter I think last year I can't remember the name of it I'd have to look it up I could not finish that movie oh my god I tried yeah, it wasn't great by any stretch of imagination. I finished it. It had so much potential, but it was like the dialogue was written by Quentin Tarantino. Like, those people talked more than we fucking do. Yeah, it'll be fun. It, I would imagine that's not something I'm going to be able to share with the family. You know, it's not be like, oh, let's go see Terrifier 3, kids. 
You know, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> so what news you got? All right, so I saved this for here because on Spill the Guts, I report a lot of news three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I really try to keep that as straight into the facts as possible. I try to keep my my own personal criticisms or beliefs out of it. But this one's kind of got me a little pissed off, but I understand it. Okay, so recently there was the H45 convention in Pasadena, California. That was earlier in October, or was that late September? I forget. It wasn't that long ago. At that convention, there was a lot of uh, convention-exclusive collectibles, artwork, all kinds of stuff. And Sean Clark worked with NECA to put out, I think it was a 1,000 Tom Atkins Halloween 3 action figures. They used the sculpt from when NECA did the Night of the Creeps action figure. And it was a big freaking deal. And I found out they were going for like 60 bucks at the convention. At first, you were only going to be able to get one per person. And then all of a sudden, it went to two per... And then, of course myself included, a lot of fans, a lot of collectors wanted to get their hands on this. It hit the market, you know, the aftermarket, and the prices were jacked up. People were selling them for $700, $800 autographed, and you could get unautographed ones for $200, $300. I finally pulled a trigger a little while ago when I was at Scarefest. I went to buy one. That's a whole nother story. I wound up finding one online, and I don't care. I'll say how much I paid. I After tax and all that stuff, it was just under 200 bucks. It wasn't signed. I thought, hey, this is a pretty good deal for the aftermarket with what's going on, right? Well, NECA did it again. NECA has decided to mass release the same damn toy exclusive to the NECA store. And it comes with a autographed silver shamrock coaster autographed by Tom Atkins, who played Dr. Dan Chalice in Halloween 3. And you can uh, pre-order them right now for $75. This is kind of my hang up. And that is... NECA does this stuff. And when you do that, it almost takes away the, you know, it doesn't almost, it does. It takes away the exclusivity of the original toy. So here I've got this one from H45 that has the badge on there and it has the number on there and it's a convention exclusive. And it doesn't mean a goddamn thing anymore because they're going to mass re-release. Usually when NECA does this, they change the packaging or change the artwork. So there's a little bit of a difference. This time it wasn't. It's just in the same box, except it includes a damn autograph. So it's cool for people who weren't able to go, cool for people who didn't want to pay, you know, the scalper prices. I totally get that and I agree with that. I just happened to be on the losing end because I shelled out a pretty penny like a two days before I could have spent 75 bucks. Now, do you plan on getting the other one and having both? No, it's funny. I was actually talking with Jason and he asked me that and I said no because it's the same toy. So I'm not going to pay $75 for something that I just paid just under 200 for to have two of them. I know it comes with the coaster, but I'll just go meet Tom Atkins and pay him to autograph it. I just did. My thought was you have the Halloween one, the H45 one numbered. You have the other one. So it's kind of a, a set. So down the road, would it be worth more if you had both of them to somebody that was a collector? Would they be like, oh, you got both? That's cool. I, I've been looking for the H45 one and this one, and now I can buy both from you. Perhaps. I mean, everybody's kinky. So everybody, you know, it depends, I guess, on, on the demand or on the want and the need. But again, if it was different packaging, yes, but it's it's not. It's the same exact freaking toy. Um, and I think that the coaster is probably going to be inside the toy. So are you even going to be able to see the autograph without opening it? 
I don't know. Like I said, NEC has done this before. I, I get it. And it's cool for people who couldn't get in on the action, you know, um, on the ground level. But I just wish if, if you say it's going to be limited, leave it limited. Because all they did was diminish the value of the original exclusive H45 toy. Yeah, when they did the Elvira and the Gizmo, you know, they did Elvira autographed and the Gizmo autographed. Someone at Target had ripped the Gizmo box open and in there was just a little card, like a almost a business card size, if I remember right, that had Howie Mandel's autograph on it. And it was just in the box. You couldn't see it anywhere. It wasn't like it was in the window or anything like that. And I think those were 100, so 70s cheap. I mean, not cheap, but... You know, Elvira and Howie Mandel as Gizmo were going for a hundred at Target, and you know, Tom at seventy seems like a, a deal. I mean, to me, who the hell goes to Target and rips open NECA packages? Goddamn savage! Savages in this country, savages. I'd look because I didn't know what the Halloween forty-five, the Tom Atkins looked like, and the the tag's cool with the numbering on it. Yeah, if it's no different than the other one. You know, like they did that with the My Bloody Valentine with the minor figure. I think that was about two years ago. I just happened to, I think I was waiting in line to pick up the youngest, to pick up boots from school. And I look at my phone and like right when I did, it was like, pre-order this now. It's available. It's limited to, you know, whatever, 3,000. And so I just hopped right on and I, I got in. And then, of course, they sold out within a matter of like 20 minutes. And then I received it and I got this cool box. And then they decided, okay, now we're going to mass re-release this, which sucked. But at least they put it in clamshell packaging as opposed to the box. And it had the different artwork. And I actually, I picked it up. So now I have both, which I probably would have done with this H3 figure, the Tom Atkins figure. But it's the same toy. I love Halloween 3, but I'm not a big collector like you and Jason are. Well, and he's buying it because it's Halloween. Yeah, they could have put some, I don't know, different artwork on the front of the box. Something that wouldn't have been hard to change, change the box. That's all you'd have to do. That's not hard. Hell, you've got to print the boxes anyway, unless they just had a bunch of boxes sitting around. I think NECA knows that for a lot of people, a lot of collectors, even your casual fans, they've got their hooks into us. And so I know people who don't even necessarily want to buy certain things that they put out, but they just kind of do because they're so far into the game. You're like, well, I've got the first two versions of Mac Ready from the thing. You know, I guess I have to get the third. Why not? So they know they're going to get your money. You know, they'll put it in a clamshell. Then they'll put it in a whatever, a different package. And the, they'll, an ultimate and a frozen beard and a, yeah, yeah, they got, they have people. Bottom line, they're getting my money. They're pretty much the reason I'm poor. So on this episode of Why Are We So Poor, we're going to throw it over to Clamp because he just got back from Scarefest and he has some amazing stories and spent a lot of money. So this is going to be his show. Sorry, folks, you're going to have to just listen to me babble the whole entire show. But there will be excitement in my voice, at least in my head. Okay, so I actually uh, went to Scarefest, went down there with Ted and Heather from Ted's Marvelous Custom Gumball Emporium, split a room, tables next to each other. You know, it was really cool. Like his uh, his dad and his stepmom kind of lived nearby, so they came, so I got to meet them. I, I got along with them great. They bought dinner, so that was nice. I actually didn't spend a whole lot of money at the convention, but a lot of cool things happened. So first off... I started the show off and I went over and I met the queen and I had Adrian Barbeau sign my NECA fog action figure. Uh, it was great talking with her and I actually learned some things. I learned that she does the voice of the evil cat lady on Scooby-Doo Zombie Island. 
which I love that movie. I never even knew that was her. And then she also does a lot of um, like video game voiceover work. So that was cool. But I walked over to her table and again, everything just got started. So there wasn't really anybody there. And I ran over and I said, yeah, I had to come over and get your autograph and meet you before you got swamped. And her handler starts laughing. She's like, ha ha, swamped. And I'm kind of like, what? And she's like, because she was in Swamp Thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I meant to say that. Ha ha, dad jokes rule. Let's see. I went and met the OG Michael Myers. I went and met Nick Castle, had him sign my Evo, my evolution of evil, young Michael, old Michael action figures. I'd already had it signed by Will Sandin, who was Michael aged, what, seven or eight in the original. So now that's complete. And I caught him Sunday morning. He was nice. I'm not saying anything negative, but we had just just got there. He was tired. I was tired. It was just kind of, hey, great to meet you. How you doing? I hope the show is going good. Sat down, took a picture, and you know, away I went. So this is one of the exciting things, and I don't think I've told you this yet, Brian. Okay, so I got to go to a backstory. I think it was on the... The episode after we covered Maximum Overdrive, which I think is when we covered I Madman, I can't remember. We had all gone to Living Dead Weekend at the Monroeville Mall. This is what, two years ago. I told this story before, but there was part of it I've never told, and there's a reason. So Saturday at that convention, my ex-girlfriend and I went and we took all the girls with us. So we had our three daughters with us. Saturday, I get everybody set up at the convention, and then I leave and I run to a gas station to get us all coffee, snacks, drinks, and everything. When I come back, the ex-old lady, Melissa, she says, you need to sit down. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, I'm used to bullshit. So what happened? What broke? What went wrong? So I hand out all the stuff and I sit down. And I go, what well, hit me? And she says, well, while you were gone, Greg Nicotero came over and bought a couple shirts. And I said, get the fuck out of here. And she's like, no, I'm serious. Greg come over and bought a couple shirts. He bought a psycho shirt and the Necronomicon Book of the Dead shirt. And I was just like, oh, this is so cool. You know, it sucks I wasn't here. She says, well, wait, this is the part of the story I haven't told. She said, well, wait, there's more. And I says, well, what could there possibly be? She said, he wants you to design a shirt for him. And I said, get the fuck out of here. And she's like, no, I'm serious. And, you know, you weren't here. So I told him when you got here, I'd send you over. She said he really loved like the simplistic design of most of your shirts. And so I was just floored. Didn't have any business cards on me. And I'm like, what do I do? She's like, well, just write your information down on a piece of paper. I have shitty penmanship. So I'm, <laughs> I went through like four sheets of paper. I'm like, no, that doesn't work. No, that looks like crap. No, you can't. So I looked at her. I was like, will you write this for me, please? She's like, oh my God. So she writes it down. I go over, introduce myself. He's, you know, yeah, I love your designs. I'd, I'd like to have you make something. And of course, we're in the middle of a convention. There's people in line behind me. So I didn't try to monopolize the time and say, what do you want? You know, I just, I said, look, here's my info. I don't have a card. Get a hold of me when you have some time and we'll discuss what's going on and go from there. And that's when uh, I got a picture with him, got his autograph and my creep show toy. I never told that part of the story because stuff like that, you never know if it's going to happen or not. So what's the point? You know, I didn't want to like this cool thing might happen like I do all the time. So fast forward to Scarefest. Greg Nicotero's there. Oh, wait, I got to back up. So just before I went to Scarefest, I came across a picture online of Greg directing an episode for the latest Creepshow season four television series. And he's wearing the damn psycho shirt that he bought. Now, mind you, it's been like two years and this was a recent picture. So I got all giddy and I'm like, wow, he really does like these. He's still wearing them. My God, he's wearing them during episode three of season four while he's shooting it. So he's at the convention. I go over to meet him. I make sure I throw on the psycho shirt that he was wearing in the picture. And I get in line and I get up to him and I'm walking up and he looks at me and he goes, he snaps his finger. He goes, I've got that shirt. And I'm like, I made that shirt. 
And he was, he looks at me and he goes, he snaps his fingers a couple times. He goes, Pittsburgh, right? So the whole thing was cool because I didn't have to remind him. I didn't have to pull it out of him. And I was just like, yeah, absolutely. And then I kind of repeated the story and he says, oh man, yeah, I love your stuff. I said, well, I'm here vending. I'm just set up. And I was trying to explain to him where I was. Cause he's like, I'll come over and see you. I couldn't explain it, but I was booth number 333. So I just said, I'm at booth 333. I'm the most half evil booth in this whole damn building. He kind of laughed. I handed him a business card and, you know, last time I just had a scrap of paper, here's a card, get a hold of me if you're still interested in something. And then I turn and I go to walk away and he says, Hey, hold on. I want to give you something. He had made a handful of these challenge coins. I posted some pictures of it um, on my social media on both sides of the coin that he designed and sculpted and everything. He made this coin are icons from different horror movies, Jaws, American Werewolf in London, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Omen. There's a lot. And so he's explaining to me all these movies. And he said, these are my favorite movies. And he said, I thought it'd be fun to make a challenge coin for these conventions. Brian, do you know what a challenge coin is? I have no, I gather it's a, you need to watch all these. So I didn't know either. And he's trying to explain it to me. And I'm kind of half-assed following him. Well, there was a guy standing behind me, going to meet him after I left. And this guy says, oh, I know what challenge coins are. He says, I'm ex-military. And then I went back to the table and was telling Ted and Heather, and they ride motorcycles. Like they just went to the Grand Canyon, I think earlier this year. And all their biker friends, they have challenge coins. So come to find out what a challenge coin is, for you listeners who don't know, is a group of people who, you know, get together, they have these coins. And if it, so like Brian, if you and I had both had challenge coins, I could at any time like pull my coin out and say, Brian, you have to go buy the next round of drinks. Or Brian, you have to buy me the H3 Tom Atkins action figure. If you don't have your coin on you, then you have to do it. If you do have your coin on you, then it just kind of negates it. I think there's more to it. But so this military guy, he's explained this to Greg and myself. And he goes, yeah, he says, back in my platoon or whatever, he said, there was one guy who always had his coin on him. We could never get him. He said, so one time we were like in the barracks or something like that. And this guy went in the shower. So we all went in there with our coins thinking he's naked in the shower. We got him. So they all went in there and flopped their coins down and said, whatever. He said, this guy had the coin shoved up his ass in his butt cheeks and pulled it out and was like, uh, uh, uh. I was like, oh my God, you know. Again, the whole thing with Greg, it was cool. He made, I don't know how many, I think he was selling some of them. He was just trying to create something fun for people to do. And, but I was fortunate enough to be gifted one. Last part of that story is he never came to the table and I haven't heard from him and I probably won't. And this being kind of the, the second encounter about t-shirts and stuff, um, I'm not going to go for a third but the experience is cool. The whole thing about, you know, one of your peers, which I, it might be hard to say because I'm not a film director, but I mean, we're all in this genre and in this industry and he's way up there. He's one of my peers. You know, I look up to some of the movies that he's made, uh, liked my stuff and wore it while he was directing a segment for one of my favorite things, creep show. So I'll take that. That'll work. You might get a big order someday from, uh, is he Pennsylvania? Yeah, he lives, he lives in Pennsylvania. I think in Pittsburgh or by Pittsburgh. You might get a big order for like 20 psycho shirts one day for Pittsburgh. And you'll be like, I wonder who's ordering these t-shirts for the whole film crew or something like that. You know, that'll have the director name on there, the Alan Smithy. So he doesn't know it. Yeah. So I don't know what's him. <laughs> there was a lot of other actors that I wanted to meet there. I did well at Scarefest. I didn't do as well as I wanted to probably because I was sitting next to Ted. Ted and Heather sold all but five of their machines. They had a fantastic weekend. I'm so happy for them. Um, People were eating up those gumball machines. There's a lot of autographs I was going to get that I didn't. One of the things I decided to get was 
the H3 Tom Atkins figure. There was three of them, come to find out four, floating around at different vendors. And I did my thing where I was kind of waiting for whatever reason, waiting for whatever reason. I took Jason over. Jason came. Jason and Tanya came and hung out. I took him over. We were looking at him. One was autographed for 300 Then there was two, come to find out, three for like 225 without an autograph. Jason didn't pick one up, but I took Ted over towards the end of Saturday, I think it was. Maybe, no, it was Sunday. And I showed him where they were. And then I went over to the Maximum Overdrive Green Goblin Head, which is another really cool story, uh, table. And then within 10 minutes, I decided, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to buy this figure. Ted ran over and bought one. I went over like 10 minutes later. They were all gone. I just missed out. I was kind of bummed, but on the drive home, I just found that the one I got on eBay for actually cheaper than what I would have paid at the convention. So I, I made out. I'm almost done, I swear. Not really, but... This is probably the coolest part of my week, and believe it or not, it's hard to top the Greg Nicotero thing, but a guy by the name of Tim Shockey. Brian, you've talked about him before. He is the guy who found the green goblin head from the Happy Toys truck just rotten away and has since brought it back to life and now takes it to shows. Hell of a nice guy. Hell of a nice guy. Over there chatting with him. And he's actually, um, all the money that he makes at conventions and probably elsewhere, I don't remember, he puts back into, he wants to refurbish other movie props and memorabilia to open up a museum. So he's got the goblin head there, got a picture with that. Do you remember me saying I've always wanted a happy toys truck toy and they don't make them? And the ones they do make aren't very good quality if you can find one that somebody's even made? He had one. And it was immaculate. It was so fucking cool. It had a great display box. He had it outside of the box. He brings it up to the table because, I mean, he just saw I was like, oh, my God. And, like, the hood opens and it's, you know, the, the truck detaches from the trailer and it's got the hoses and the back of the back doors of the trailer open. It was very well done. Very cool. Apparently, earlier this year or late last year, they made like kind of a prototype. I can't remember how many, but it's not many, like maybe a hundred, maybe 300, maybe 50. I really can't remember. And they uh, sold a few and he got a hold of one. He had just one. And I think he said they were going for like 125. That's what he paid for. Pretty reasonable for what it is actually. And I was trying to buy it off him. And he's like, no, it's mine. It's the only one. I kept pushing and kept pushing. I, I kind of felt a little Jason-y. And then finally he says, make me an offer. And I looked at him and I said, I'll be back here in a little bit. So I go back and it was after I showed Ted where the H3 figures were. And I said, hey, I said, I'm, I'm really interested in buying this. You know, like, what are you thinking? And he says, no. He says, I'm sorry, but I don't want to sell it. He said, there's a few online. You can go on eBay and find a few. Well, he had told me that earlier in the weekend. And I looked him up and I only found one. It was in the UK. And they wanted like 400 bucks plus like 50 bucks shipping. And it was just, nah. He grabbed my phone and put in a link. Apparently, I wasn't typing in the right thing. And there was one online for about 180 bucks which isn't too bad if they originally went for like 125 and i snagged that fucking thing up in a heartbeat it is now sitting in my toy my toy room and i am the hap hap happiest toy of the happy toy truck owners it is so cool and it's never coming out of the box ever do you know who made them it's a one and 64th scale made by western star which i don't know anything about them it says dcp by first gear made by Western Star. It does say in the bottom of the box here, stay up to date on our latest releases through social media and sign up to receive regular promotions via email or newsletter. You can visit their website at firstgearonline.com. 
I wonder if there's still some available on that site. I haven't looked because I was just so happy when I got this. I've kind of just been staring at it for a while now. So the other part of that is the actress who played Brett in Maximum Overdrive, Emilio Estevez's girlfriend. She was there signing autographs. First time ever signing autographs. When I got there, I was like, it would be really cool to have her sign a straight razor. Remember, she always had Mother's Helper. We always talked about Mother's Helper. And so I went to all these different vendors, prop replica weapon vendors, and no one had a straight razor. Sunday morning, I was like looking at my phone before we left the hotel. And I'm like, there's got to be like a barber supply place around here or something. I can go buy a damn. So I'm looking at Walmart, Target, Tractor Supply. I'm looking everywhere. I found a place, but it didn't open till 11, you know, like an hour after the convention opened. So I get a hold of Jason and I was like, hey, are you still in town? He goes, yeah. I said, you want to do me a favor? He says, well, we just got on the road. I was like, oh, damn it. So when we get to the convention, I go over to her and I say, I've got a really good idea for you. And she goes, what's that? I said, it would be cool if you had straight razors to sign, you know, because mother's helper. You could see the light bulb. She was like, oh, my God, that's such a good idea. Well, there was a vendor that I had talked to earlier looking for the straight razor. They said, no, we don't have those, but we're going to start making them. And I was like, cool. So anyway, I just kind of played middleman and I ran back and forth between that vendor. They were really cool. Their 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 stuff was awesome. It was very um, realistic looking. Ran back and forth between the actress and Tim, who had the goblin head, who's going to kind of like, I think maybe be her rep. I'm not sure. And got them hooked up. So they're going to start making straight razors for her to have at conventions. And then according to Tim, he's trying to put together a cast reunion, probably at Scarefest next year for Maximum Overdrive. It was cool to be a little part of it. Yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know that you'd get Emilio Estevez, but you could probably get most of the rest of the cast. Oh, you might, though. That's a big convention. That's probably one of the biggest ones in the United States as far as sheer amount of celebrities that go there. And I mean, it even had some people that weren't celebrities at the show that showed up. Yeah, Chris Jericho was there. He was wandering around. Steve Zahn was there. Did you see that? No, I didn't. I think it was Scarefest that people were posting pictures that Steve's on, you know, from Daddy Daycare and, oh, 8-Bit Christmas and that strange wilderness. He was there. He's, he's got this big, white, fluffy beard. He had, like, a baseball cap on. And I told Tiffany, I was like, how come Steve's on looks cool like that? And I look like I should fucking be panhandling for change when my beard gets like that. <laughs> I was like, he looks cool. Like, what the fuck? That's funny. Yeah, it was. There's a ton of people. And then, I mean, like book celebrities. I think when I was hyping up the show a week or so before, a couple weeks ago before I left, I was like, oh, 50 or 60. I, it was like almost 80, if not more, celebrities, and only two canceled. You know, again, I went there last year, had fun, went there this year, had a blast. Uh, I'll, I'll be going back and hopefully there's that maximum overdrive cast reunion. I could see Emilio doing it because not that if you're like an A lister, you're above conventions. I'm not trying to say that, but. Emilio hasn't been attached to anything recently. You know, I don't know anything about his, his life, but I could see him doing something like that. That'd be a cool poster to get autographed, have all these autographs on it. Yearly Smith might be the hard one to get there, the voice of Lisa Simpson. But. Yeah, from the Simpsons, yeah. I looked up your uh, the toy truck company. No maximum overdrive toys on their site, but they do have a lot of trucks, like 120 just for what appears to be a normal truck. You know, they had like a truck that looked like the semi at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 11995. So I mean, I'm sure the Happy Toys truck was, you know, 120, 140 bucks when it was on their site. Oh, well, I'm wondering if they're going to mass 
mass produce this because again it was just earlier this year or late last year and i wonder if it was like a test run to see there's got to be other people other people other than myself who would love to get their hands on this thing it's amazing it's just outside of that realm enough that not everybody will know about it though even if they do mass produce it you'll get your diehards will find it but people on the outer layers of horror and collecting, maybe you're like your people that go crazy for all the NECA stuff. They won't find it unless somebody shares it, you know, because they had, I mean, they had dump trucks and trash trucks and sanitary district trucks. They just had all kinds of vehicles on this site. And they're all detailed and realistic. They look great. Yeah, everything that I looked at looked awesome. I don't know. Maybe you'll get lucky on this one and it'll be one of those that some leaked out and they ran it and they just was like, nah, it didn't sell very well. So we'll just shut it down. Use the mold for a different truck. I thought about having her sign this because I wanted to get her autograph anyway, especially since it was her first convention and I wanted to support her. But I just had the straight razor stuck in my head and I was just like, I'll see you next time. So yeah, it sounds like a lot, but I actually didn't spend as much money as I wanted to. There was a whole bunch of other stuff I wanted to grab, some posters I found, some other toys and stuff. I didn't spend a lot, but I spent some on the way home on eBay ordering this shit. You got a sponsor lined up? I could use some cash. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. But yeah, we could find somebody. Somebody will give us some money. Calling all independent horror artists. We here at the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast will be launching a new monthly show later this month with a focus on misfit and up-and-coming filmmakers, authors, comic book artists, musicians, fan films, help scrapbookers, we don't care. All you have to do is reach out to us at ilikeitspookypod at gmail.com or any of our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, X, TikTok, or Threads. Tell us what you have going on, and we will do our best to highlight your projects on the show. Now that we've heard from our sponsor, please welcome to the Spooky Studio, producer, Emmy Award-winning director, and thankfully so, because she has brought us a breath of fresh air with her current film follower, Sylvia Kaminer. How about this? You come up with the next part of the script, and then we'll improvise, see how it pans out. Who survived? Hello. So nice to be here, you guys. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank thank you for being here. We're actually honored to be among the shows on your current publicity tour. You mentioned early on in communications with co-host Brian here that you have uh, we have a mutual friend in John Eisberg. Yeah. And I, I tell you what, from what I can tell, you and him are similar in your like workhorse ethic as far <laughs> as promoting your projects. Trying. It's funny. I listened to John's podcast with you guys and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not doing enough. I literally was like, holy shit, I have to do more. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a pretty aggressive, you know, anything I want, I've had to fight for. Like nothing has ever come easy for me. Nothing has ever been handed to me. Nothing comes easy for me. Um, that's just my lot in life. So I have to work really hard. And so like reaching out to you guys, you know, especially in the indie world, you just have to work hard. And John's great at that as well. And he's so good at being on camera and making fun videos and stuff, which I don't typically do. I really like to be behind <laughs> the camera. Talking is fine. John does talk a lot. In fact, we talked about it on the interview with him when I met him in a, in Louisville last year. Yeah, him and I just talked and talked and talked. Right. So, Sylvia, I looked up your IMDb, 
on your bio, it lists one acting credit in the 2011 short, I Love You, directed by John Gallagher. But the bulk of your extensive body of work is behind the camera, if I'm not mistaken. Your journey started in in theater, correct? It did. Yeah. You know, I I started as a biochemistry major, going to find a cure for disease, you know, cancer, and took a year off, traveled the world, came back and told my parents, I don't really want to do that. I want to do theater. I grew up in New York City, and, you know, my aunt used to take me to the third row center. Broadway shows. And I started loving it from the time I was probably seven and saw Yul Brenner uh, deliver The King and I. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. So then I graduated from SUNY, State University of New York at New Paulson Theater. I love theater. You know, I have unfortunately not done it in a while. But what I really loved about starting in theater is just how close you get to working with actors. There's so much more rehearsal in theater. So you, you kind of break through any kind of anxiety or nervousness about working with actors and breaking down the script. You know, it was great experience for thinking in beats and rhythms and actions for actors, you know, as a way to direct rather than talking about emotion. So yeah, so I value I do value th- those years. I'm actually kind of jumping ahead of my little uh, my little roadmap here, but you brought up rehearsal. With the film Follow Her, was there a lot of rehearsal in that? Everything seemed real natural. Yeah, no, you know, there really wasn't. Luke came out from L.A. Danny was already there. And we had, I think it was about two and a half days, but that included his, you know, he had to have fittings. And the three of us spent the first day, and we just kind of read through the script a bit. You know, we kind of read through it and talked through any beats or concerns with d- script or dialogue. But Danny, um, who plays Jess, was the writer, you know, and she and I had workshopped the script for, gosh, quite a while. And also, you know, Luke Cook is a master at improvisation. So we talked a little bit about that, that there was a freedom to kind of explore a bit. And then, you know, I really wanted to kind of get script up on its feet. And a little bit the way you do in in theater, we kind of blocked it because I knew having just two actors for, you know, the big chunk of the movie in the middle and shooting it in one location with a scaled down crew, I wanted to get as much pre-lit and ready. So I thought, well, the easiest thing I can do is let's play with it on its feet with, with the actors. And I'm very much into like motivated movement not just moving actors. Oh, it would, we've been standing too long in one place. No, there's got to be a reason, a, you know, some momentum or something that helps an actor move across this, you know, this, the stage or something. So, so that was kind of a process that we did. We literally spent like a day and a half and that allowed me to also talk moments with the cast. Yeah. We just kind of went through and then we, you know, not to say that like nothing changed <laughs> on when we were filming, you know, of course things did, but so that was really, you know, the extent of rehearsals. I, I kind of made sure I didn't talk too in depth about either Tom or Jess, the two leads um, with the other present, because we kind of always wanted to keep the, you know, the other character a little off balance, not sure exactly, especially Jess. Uh, Luke and I had talked about the intensity that we wanted and the shifts in that. And we didn't really fill her in too much on some of that. Back to the the theater part. Um, I, I think everything you're doing, yeah, it shows a strong theater background. I have a limited theater background, so I understand the mechanics enough to know that they could, it's a real strong foundation to build from moving forward into other projects, other media projects. Tell us a little bit about your transition, because it sounds like you love the theater. That's what kind of got you into all this and how that transitioned into behind the camera and, and film and television. Well, I got to give my dad a lot of credit and most kids at 20 too probably, you know, wouldn't have maybe taken advice from their father the way I did. But, you know, my father asked me a really important question. Basically, he was saying, you know, if you want this to be your life and a career and a way you can be satisfied artistically, but also financially, it's that's not going to happen in the theater. 
That's it's going to only be a hobby for you, really. And it, it's funny because I had been directing a play in Denver, um, and I was literally about to step in and act. The head of the theater was going to come in and rehearse me because he's like, "This would be such great experience for you as a director." So I was all set. We had extended the play. I was going to step in, and then a play I had directed off Broadway in New York. The two lead actors got cast in a film. I didn't even have the job yet, but my father's voice was in my head. And I was like, if I ever wanted to transition into film, this is my opportunity. So I made connection with that director. He didn't hire me. He said, well, we can talk when you get here. So I basically told the theater company, oh, I can't do it. I have a, a film. I'm, I've got work on a film. And I, I left Denver with a job ready to go to fly to you know New York to see if I could get on this film. And I did. I ended up as a second, second AD on that film. It's a, a film that nobody ever saw the, the light of day. It <laughs> never saw the light a day, but I learned a, a lot, a lot of what not to do, you know, but because of that, I met, you know, some PAs, which helped me then get on to big films and work with some of my heroes as a production assistant. I love hearing people's backstories because it is, it is about talent. It's about drive, but a lot of it is about the, the old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. That stuff is those connections and networking are very important. Yeah. And especially because I knew nobody that was, I literally, my whole life, I thought, oh, you can't, you have to be born into that. Like I was like, I could never work in film and theater. And it really wasn't until I traveled and I realized like, well, you can get a degree. There is something you can do. Maybe I could. But that's why I left the theater because I was like, who knows when I'll ever have an opportunity like this to actually be on a film set. It was a big gamble, but I, I didn't, I wasn't concerned. I was like, I'm getting it. <laughs> I'm going to get on that film. and It obviously seems like it, it was the right gamble, the right move to make. Again, you have now an extensive body of work. You are perhaps best known for, for 2011's Tanzania, A Journey Within, 2012's An Affair of the Heart, and the TV series Samantha Brown's Place to Live, to name a few. So I've got a couple questions. Do you prefer working in the television or the film world, or is it the same? No, they're so different. So the big thing for me has been, you know, fiction versus nonfiction. I started in fiction and I, that was my whole life. I was just going to do movie, 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 you know, fiction. I was going to, I was producing, I was going to direct. And then my other great passion in life is travel. And I think travel is like in everybody person's life, the more you can travel. For me, at least it's, it's a more rewarding life. So an opportunity came up to mix my passion for travel with my passion for storytelling. And that's when I first started working with Samantha Brown. And it's so different because that's, you know, a crew of seven. You're traveling, you're staying in hotels, you're seeing, meeting interesting people and going to, you know, different places. You're not waiting for camera or lights or, you know, you're just, it's bam, bam, bam. But what you kind of learn doing that is how, how to quickly tell if something's working. Because if the host is speaking to someone on camera and there's no charge, there's no electricity, it's not, you have to kind of sometimes maybe cut and run or figure out how you can make it interesting in the moment type of work makes you be very present. And, um, and because I started in film, which is all about storytelling and arcs, I try to bring that nonfiction work, the unscripted work, easier said and done with feature documentaries, the Rick Springfield and the Tanzania docs, which I think in some ways almost play more like a narrative film than a documentary because I'm always thinking story and hook, uh, you know, arc and, you know, is there a conflict? So, I mean, looking through your body of work, it, the majority of your projects seem to be the human side of things, which is another reason we're glad you're on this show. We're, we're kind of horror junkies. So we're, we're usually talking about mutant chainsaw, Hollywood hookers and stuff, you know. <laughs> right. 
but it looks like a lot of the stuff that you do lives in that world of like dramatic entertainment, meaning like a lot of your projects would be in the drama section of a video store. Is that safe to say it's more of a human experience? It is. Although I have loved genre films since I was a kid, I will say I am more Shining fan than I am a like Jason or, you know, the unlike John, I am not into like the, you know, gore, you know, slasher films or not. Not I have seen a few, especially when I was like in high school. I loved slasher films, but I like to be scared. Like I, I do love, I mean, Exorcist. There's so many great Rosemary's Baby, so many great movies. And as a kid, I love Stephen King. I mean, The Stand was probably my favorite book through junior high school and even, even probably in high school. I still love it, you know, so follow her. I specifically for my narrative debut as a director, you know, this is the first feature length film that I've directed that's fiction. I specifically knew it would be a genre film. I was only really reading genre films and it's a softer genre film. It's not, you know, I often wonder is it, you know, it gets classified as horror and I'm always like, gosh, I don't know if it's, but we played all these big horror film festivals, which, so I guess it's psychological horror and there are elements of horror, but it's, it's really more of a psychological or erotic thriller. And I plan to do more. The eroticism was, was definitely, definitely present. And again, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but what I thought was interesting was you, you made, you covered so many taboos and that uh, erotic nature was very present, but you somehow pulled it off to where I would feel comfortable watching this movie with my two teenage daughters. You, you know, it wasn't that there was what very little nudity. None of it was gratuitous and um, erotic and I don't know, edgy, but still not. Uh, I better not let the kids watch this. I think that was definitely something I was going for also because it was, you know, like through the female lens. So really in the bedroom scene, it's Tom's body who's way more on display you know, he's the one that sprawled, you know, bare chested. There's definitely that chemistry that they bring. And there is that eroticism and a little bit of fetish stuff as well. You know, it's funny, the first script I got before, you know, when I first read it, the script Danny sent me, in my opinion, was more of an NC-17. There was a lot more nudity and a lot, and, I, and I just felt it was unnecessary. Like it might have, you know, and she was totally open to it. You know, I think sometimes when you write a script, the way you write it feels maybe like more of it was going to be exposed and there was going to be more. But yeah, I think you don't. Yeah, like I said, I've, I, I like Hitchcock. I like, you know, you don't have to show everything. Everything. The human imagination to me is much stronger, especially with with horror, with scares to me is, you know, make them imagine what's going to happen rather than show it and put it in their face. And I feel kind of the same way with the eroticism. I was going to ask, you kind of just answered it, but I was going to ask with the majority of your work being more on the you know dramatic side, I was going to ask what attracted you to the, I would categorize it a horror thriller. Uh, it sounds like it's maybe the, the strength of the story that you were presented that attracted you to this project. It was. I love the big hook, you know, well, the big uh, surprise, which, you know, when the lights come on and- Which one? There was a few. <laughs> there are a few. Yeah, I like that. And I knew I wanted something really current. As a filmmaker, we're all looking for something right now, very contemporary. And yeah, I love that it was, I didn't want to make a victim film. And Danny felt very much the same way. So I was like, you know, whatever we do, she, yes, she is victimized at times, but it's not, she isn't a victim. She is sometimes victimizing others. I liked that it would force me to learn more about social media, which I knew very little about when I started. And I liked that it was maybe not to condemn. I'm not, I'm not out to like, 
I personally don't love social media, but I'm not, hey, it's the way of the world. It's what we do. So I wasn't out to judge it, but I, I didn't mind the thought of at least making people maybe think a little bit about, first off, safety. Who are you trusting online? And then, you know, our morals are important. And, you know, when you're online, are you thinking about what you're putting out, you know, and is it harmful? But we wanted to do that in a fun, non-judgmental way. And hopefully we succeeded. You know, I certainly didn't want to make like a judgmental film that's against social media. Oh, no, I, I think it was relatable. And guys, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but we, we talk all the time um, or other friends of mine that we discuss, like, I personally don't care for social media either. If it wasn't for being in whatever outer realm of the media world that we're in, you have to be. And Sylvia, like you said at the beginning, we were talking about John, you have to constantly be present. I mean, the the what attention spans like 8.5 seconds, I think. Watching the very beginning of this film, it was so relatable because I don't think any of us are trying to be you know, influencers or social media stars, we are trying to get attention and get those likes and get those follows. And so I related with what she was attempting to do. I also find it with like texting, it's so easy to cross a little line. And once you cross that little line, you're like, oh shit, I'm, 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 how do I go back? But then I have to, uh, it's like this very slippery slope. It's because it's so impersonal. It's also easy to be nasty and to say things and that you normally would never do online. Like you wouldn't write a letter to somebody and say some of the stuff that you feel like people feel sometimes they can say online. Yeah, it's the world we live in. And now there's like all these new social media platforms. I'm like, oh my God, we have a girl that does our, uh, Melanie Hall, who does our social media. And she's like, okay, I just signed you up for it. I'm like, what? Like Instagram's new Twitter. I'm like, oh, fudge. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, she's like, do you want me to get you up there? And I'm like, oh, do I have to? If you want to master the art of unsending a message, get with Brian here after the show. He has mastered the art of unsending messages. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. You might have to fill me in. <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about with this movie is you go back to the slashers of the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And you say, I wouldn't do that if I didn't have social media. A lot of those kids wouldn't have done that if they weren't away at camp. Right. So true. They wouldn't have done drinking and sex and drugs. Right. And I feel like this movie will be some of those movies from that time period mm. where you go back and you remember going to camp as a child. People yeah. in the future will come back to this movie and be like, I remember when social media was like that. Wow. And there was only fans and there was yeah. TikTok because it'll change. It'll In 10 years, we won't be where we are today. And people will be able Ooh. to go back and look and be like, you remember when people were doing that stuff? Wow. I hope you're right. And you probably are. That's interesting because I feel like it's here to stay. But you're right. It's always changing, always changing. And the more, especially with like VR and oh, gosh, remember that Google Glass thing? Like, I'm so glad that kind of didn't work out. But yeah, so that, that's that's interesting. And I used to love those camp movies because I, I went to camp. I grew up in New York City. So every summer, you know, we would go to Fire Island. I'd go to camp, you know, every day. And well, I tell you what, I have to be honest, when I saw the, the trailer, when I first saw the trailer before I watched the film, my initial reaction, besides you could immediately tell visually that this was made by competent filmmakers. But my first reaction was, oh, this is going to be one of those like pretty, pretty white kids with problems type of movie. <laughs> right. And uh, I tell you what, I was dead ass wrong. Oh, well, good. 
<laughs> cool. Like, like I say, clearly it's evident from the get-go this movie was made by competent filmmakers. Well, but in addition, and you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but you were blessed with a solid cast, in particular the two leads, Jess played by Danny Barker and Tom played by Luke Cook. They have such great chemistry and like beginning to end shiny moments. How much of that was your direction or were their inter- interactions you know, natural like they seemed? Yeah, I mean, the one thing as a director of this film, one of, you know, I had a couple not concerns with things that I knew this film would live or die by. And I knew because I didn't know Danny's work and this was her first feature as a writer and also as a star. And I had only seen a little bit of her work. This comes from, I'm going to detour for a second. This comes from her, her life in a sense. I don't know if you guys probably don't know this, but 12 years ago, approximately, she had a, a YouTube series where she took crazy jobs she found on Craigslist and filmed them secretly to then edit and put on her YouTube show. <laughs> and her first episode, she got tickled for an hour for it was either 25 or $50. So, so that gave me at least I'm like, you know, I don't know Danny's performance, level, but I know this is coming from a real place from her. I, I had a really good feeling from her that she was going to deliver. But I knew, holy cow, like we need an amazing actor to play Tom. And if they don't have chemistry, there's no faking it on something like this. Like they have to have chemistry and he has to have the intensity, you know, he has to have the charm, but also like, you know, Nicholson in the shine, like he has to have moments where you're just like, oh my God, he's capable of anything. So a lot of that, I would say they brought, and then, you know, my DP and I, who's brilliant DP, Luke Geisbuehler, he, he's done a lot of narrative stuff, but he also does Sasha Baron Cohen's films. So, you know, he did Borat and the last Borat. And, and so, you know, he and I really collaborate so well together. We've worked together for a while. And so the way we shot it and the framing and the close-ups and the, we tried to really bring some of that, especially like the first scene in the park, you know, we really wanted those longing moments where they're studying each other's faces while one's talking, we're maybe watching the other one. So some of it was in the shooting and in the editing, but they also had to bring that natural kind of spark, which thank God they did. Cause so like 50 minutes of the movie is them. And you, you have to believe it's funny you know, you have to believe that she would follow him. And we do a little bit earlier, you know, we know she's got kicked out of her apartment. We know she's really struggling and wants to make it and she needs to have, a, you know, a compelling video to put on her show. And But if he doesn't have that charm and isn't good looking enough without being too pretty, because then it's unbelievable, like, you know, it's like bullshit. She wouldn't follow him. And we still got, you know, it's funny. I'll tell you one, one quick story. When I, I very much believe in before you lock a picture, share it with people you trust and not just filmmakers, smart people who like the types of movie you're making. And so I shared a rough cut of the film, more than a rough cut, but with maybe 15 people. And the only people that ever came back and said, I don't know if she'd go with him. And this is, had we done, I don't think we we had the third act in yet, but we're men. The women, no one else was like, oh, she wouldn't. And it was a few men and they were probably in their 40s or 50s. And I'm like, oh, they're, they're, they're like visualizing their own daughter or their wife or their girlfriend. And they're like, oh, would she go? And it, it kind of freaked them out. The harsh reality is in today's world, yeah. I mean, I used to hitchhike as a, <laughs> in my late teens and stuff. You know, you do some, you know, I mean, she's not, you know, 18, 20, but she's desperate. He seems trustworthy. She's up to no good also. That's the part I was going to say is what made it believable that she did follow him is I think you you guys explored the fact that she's kind of a predator herself she's not, she's not a victim she's not a timid young woman she's you know so kind of a little vicious side maybe but that scene was great you're talking about the first thing I noticed is when they met at the park he um immediately stood in right in her bubble yeah. just enough where it was uncomfortable and I was like oh wow there's so many subtleties that you pulled off with, with just body mechanics 
Yeah. And he, you know, touched her a little bit, her arm. And, you know, you see a few moments where she's like, you can almost hear her saying, oh my gosh, she's so good looking because she's used to, you know, the, the weirdos that, you know, tie her up and want to tickle her. And so it's a surprise. I don't know. If someone wants to pay me 50 bucks an hour to tickle me. I think I'll... <laughs> I, I don't know. Tied up and t- tickled under your armpits and feet, and that'd be pretty brutal for me. I was thinking, I'm in my 40s, and I think I would have went with him for 1500 bucks. Right. Like, yeah. He's a good-looking guy. I would have gotten two. I know. He's saying, which only take a couple hours. Well, all right. And you don't know you're not. The Wi-Fi is not going to come back. You're like, you know, I'll get back. The show will be live again when we get to his house. And then he and then he lives in that beautiful house, the, the barn, which has all those strange, you know, of course, we had to put some weird little items. That It's interesting to hear that the, the story also had some, I asked John the same question i love hearing especially from indie films is this story personal so it's interesting to hear that there there was some real life you know motivation behind this you know so follow her is very aware of itself very meta and also like we're discussing right now like like tom when they're writing the script of the movie and brian i thought of you when i heard this he says the line it, it, this is very much like an onion it's loaded with layers to peel back and that's that's what this film is. It, it is loaded loaded with layers well cool hopefully you know we were hoping trying to throw some little kind of things in there that maybe you might not even all pick up, you know? Yeah, a couple hidden things. Well, that's what's great, too, is actually there were so many subtleties and so many layers and the story was so strong that I think you could go back on a second or third watch and maybe pick up on a couple things that you skipped over or might have missed. Or There were so many moments throughout the film also that turned norms and me on their heads, such as when Jess was reading the first few pages of the script, for example. That moment was what you would normally see at the end of a movie to like tie it together or explain it. Was the intentionality of moments like this throughout the film just completely flipping established algorithms was that kind of front and center to switch things up like that kind of yeah to take maybe the norms and throw them out you know swap them and move things around a little bit and and like you said also be aware you know we poke fun at ourselves you know when he says things like oh the audience is getting bored we have to do something you know so it's all that kind of stuff and yeah and you know it's it's funny that that her reading that script that was probably the scene that i kept coming back to and re-editing it and re trying to think and i was like ah i don't know why but that one took a lot of work <laughs> figuring out even the look of it because the colors changed and and then she's flashing and you're seeing like these unusual shots of him you know and because it had you know we we needed right there you kind of really establish oh okay we are in a horror film kind of and what's coming up and you don't know what to expect because you're like wow you know this is all like about her well that was it, it, how i viewed it was that was like the beginning of the second act and that you're correct that is when i noticed the horror elements or even a little bit later on when she escapes or is let loose from the house and that's when you kind of had that stalker moment where I've actually Jason I thought you might have enjoyed that part of the film it had that very kind of Michael Myers chase through the woods she's got an axe in her hand type stuff great that you uh, incorporated those elements if you guys are into that you know like when he says um, I'll do the slow walk after you know making fun of you know those the killers are always you know they do that kind of slow walk yeah there were so many times where I was kind of taken aback by knowing what was actually going on so at first I thought, I'm like, okay, you know, Tom's the bad guy. And then after a while, it kind of flips and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Is Jess going to take him out? Is So it, it flipped back and forth. And that's what kind of kept me on my seat. Well done with that. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. That's great. 
That was a challenge, you know, because I remember thinking like, boy, how do we keep Because, you know, once you start building tension, if you let it drop, then you're back at square one. You got to build it again. So it was very much trying to figure out how do we keep the tension building. And so for me, what what I tried to do is build moments in kind of, I stole this from from Hitchcock, which it's funny because Hitchcock is, I like Hitchcock. He's not one of, he's not my favorite filmmaker or anything like that, but I respect his artistry. And one of the things that he did so successfully was he let the audience know more than the protagonist. So you kind of, and to me, I was like, gosh, that kind of makes you lean in a little bit because you're like, no, don't do that. Leave. What are you, don't stay. You know, but then again, you know, because you know that there's a lock and that door's not going to just, oh, like I added into, you know, the script, some moments thing under the, under the bed. You know, that was something I, I thought of one night and I was like, oh, you know, just these little things will kind of keep, hopefully keep that, you know, that tension building. Another great moment I thought was the, uh, I, I call it the false ending. I thought that was the end of the movie. And I tell you what, as a viewer, you could have ended it right there and I would have been satisfied. And when he looks at her and says, run, and she takes off, I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. We considered ending it there. You know, it, it would have been a little bit short. It would have been, well, an 80 minute movie is is okay, but we thought we might get blasted a bit that we just left it too open, too open-ended without any explanation, you know, because we wanted to leave a little bit to the viewer. I don't want it wrapped up in a bow for me. Well, depending on the movie. I also hate it when I'm just like, wait, we're done? Like, how can we be over right now? Unless they're like, you know, pushing for a part two and it comes up. You actually just answered my next question because I was going to ask if that was the original ending, if it evolved as production went on. So it was not the original ending. There was an ending, but it was different than where we went. But initially... It was going to be a much. It was going to be a shorter ending, and we were just going to see that there now she's being followed and watched everywhere, you know, as she's running down the road or something. But we kind of ran out of time, and it was just like ah. Was the ending that you did rush because? And, and again, this isn't a dig because I tell you, what, it was really hard coming up with this interview and not just gushing all over the movie. The actual ending after you know the quote unquote false ending that was the only part that didn't feel quite as organic as the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. So is that was that based off time constraints? Not. Really? I mean, yes, time was always a constraint, you know, that we were fighting up against. You know, it's funny because there are parts of it. I'm like, gosh, yeah, we edited it so fast because we're just like, we got to end the movie. We got to, you know, and I'm looking back, I'm like, you know, we could have slowed down just a tiny bit. But a lot of that also came up in the edit, the very, very ending. A lot of that was graphics was, you know, you know, VFX company and us helping to come up with like, what are they doing? So much of that was actually written after the film was done. And it was developing and we were thinking, well, what is it exactly? And some of the screens you see later on were really, you know, Alex Scans, my editor and I um, sitting there trying to think about, well, how do we do this? And, you know, what are we saying and what are we doing? And then we would have an idea and we'd also talk to Danny, of course. Yeah, that was definitely more of a kind of a put together piece in post than so much shot. I tell you what, the, the cinematography was absolutely on par. You had great shot compositions. And I loved you were talking about shooting the word like now she's being watched everywhere. I picked up on that kind of early on in the film. You had these long, wide shots and it was just that sense of she's being watched wherever she goes. Yeah, and we had a couple. We wanted to make sure people were, like when she crosses this outside of Penn Station and you actually see the lines that she's actually, someone is recording, but you don't know, are they recording her? Did she just walk, you know, through someone's shot? You know, yeah, and some of those real wide shots, like when she's running back into the house after the outhouse scene, that kind of feels we didn't put the little red dot, but that's kind of like a camera watching her, you know, 
Yeah. So that was very much and something that Luke, my DP Luke, and I had to work on was how to shoot this film because we had so many different cameras. You know, there were GoPros and Osmos and, you know, glasses camera and, you know, so many different things. We ordered a bunch of spy cameras just to see what was out there. And we actually used the glasses cameras that we ordered were so unattractive. Like, I can't put the lead actress in these ugly (laughs) glasses. But we actually used them for a couple of the shots. When she's sitting at the piano, she first gets to his place and she sits down at the piano. That shot is actually shot. I'm like, why didn't we also shoot with a big camera? But, you know, through the glasses camera, you know. And then when we looked at it, we're like, okay, we really can't use this too much anymore. But it was interesting to see how, like, it's amazing where how, how many hidden spy type cameras are out there. The Jess character herself was like James Bond. I was waiting for her to pull out a <laughs> right. Batman utility belt. <laughs> right. You set it up well early in the movie where when she was on, I forget what she was on, the ferry or whatever, and she gets a text with a picture of her. And so she thinks people are looking at her and she looks over and everybody was looking at her, but it was more, it framed it to be her imagination because then everybody looked away. So then the whole movie you're thinking, is somebody really looking at her? Yeah, you know, it's funny because for for a while when we shot that scene, there was a potential to make it add in this horror element of her like losing her mind so she's going to start, you know, and I say, ah, that just muddies it all up. Then no, she's not crazy. She's just not a great, very moral person when it comes to social media and she's going to get, you know, in trouble. Whereas now we make her also crazy, you know, I was like, nah, I don't think we need, we need it. Would have been fun to play with those elements, but for the, save it for the next one. Well, I was going to say it may be in a potential sequel. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, this, uh, I'm assuming this was partially filmed in New York or was it entirely filmed in New York? It was entirely filmed in New York. Upstate New York, that barn was in Saugerties. So Saugerties, Woodstock, that area is all the country. When she leaves p- from Penn Station, everything else is up there. And then she comes back at the end after the run. And that was all Brooklyn, mostly Brooklyn, some of it in Manhattan, even one scene in Staten Island. Well, and we filmed on the Staten Island ferry, which was like one of the only public transportation things that we actually had a license to, you know, a permit to film on, you know, subways and train stations, trains we kind of stole. Well, and that's the reason I ask that is, you know, stalking you, I felt like the antagonist in your movie stalking you in preparation for this interview. I saw <laughs> our native New York in which or you know New Yorker I said New York in and has since have since moved to Florida and I noticed that you had the line in the movie where it was uh, it was a great line where it was, no one can live in New York pursue or afford to pursue their dreams and so I didn't know if that was a comment of like I'm out of this place it's so tough to get stuff done <laughs> That's here so funny you know I do kind of find that true. Yeah, I don't know why I'm in Florida every day. I'm like, what the frig am I doing here? I went there because my dad got sick and then he passed and I didn't want to leave mom and I was going to get married. It's such an easy place to live though because it's so much more affordable. I've got family two doors down. They watch my cats. Mr. Squeakers is my boy, my cat. I saw that too, yeah. (laughs) I know, I gave him an IMDb page because I've been doing some funny things with him. I'm like me trying to figure out how to make some funny social media posts. I'm like, okay, we're going to do a poster. Milo's really mad because his number is over a million (laughs) Um, you know and he's a character yeah he was the hardest the hardest actor in the movie was my cat the most demanding he needed his own trailer yeah the one that caused me the most stress my daughter was more worried about mr squeakers than jess to me, that was such an important thing. It made her more likable because, first off, I will never hurt a cat in a movie. Like, I love cats. I'm like, no. She becomes so much more human and likable that she's more concerned about Mr. Squeakers and herself at that moment. And and those big eyes. And he, Well, good. I'm glad to hear that, Jason. 
Well, and if you watch the movie, you realize that every person in it is guilty. You don't know if it is just the bad person. Is Tom the bad person? At one point, there's viewers that are questioned, like, does mom know you watch this? Clint had talked about the social, you know, commentary on it. Yeah. Who is the bad person? Like, is it the viewers? Because if no one's watching this, it's not happening. Right. You know, her friends aren't the most trustworthy people. No, Kai blows her off. (laughs) The only thing in the whole movie that's... And the dad is not a super nice guy. Yeah, he doesn't seem like he's a very upstanding... He's an attorney, which makes him unlikable. Um, And then he just doesn't seem like he's the most supportive dad. Right. The cat's the only innocent person or thing in the whole movie. Mr. Squeakers. Yep, that's so funny. Sylvia, I'm going to hit you with some some quick random questions just kind of all over the place is that okay yeah absolutely you ready i am the clown mask at the end was that made from a cancer mask i know it's an odd question wow no so i knew that clown mask was so important and i was it was probably like three or four days before we started filming the second part like we filmed the stuff with luke first and then like a year later we filmed everything else we were just about to shoot like it within like three or four days the scene where the clown ma- you know the clown shows up outside and i was like god we need the right uh i don't want to just uh, this clown from it or like i didn't want a clown that we'd seen before and i was on Instagram and we were looking at potential locations and I went to this like art gallery that mask was was there at this gallery and so I spent like I didn't go to sleep that night searching for the guy and I found him and he ended up playing quasi queen you know the guy that wears a huge and he plays one of the other influencers watching that's his mask so no it was already created I was like dude I have to use your mask in my movie and to make sure he would give it to me I gave him a part in the film oh it was a stun it was a stunning mask it was a great oh look. my god yeah I, I wouldn't I don't know what I would have done if he'd said no. I was so like, I'm like, I'm not doing this without that mask. I asked if it was a cancer mask because uh, my father passed away from cancer in 2013. And um, I, used to ru- I used to run a haunted house and he had that same and it flared out and it was netted like that. And it was basically for when they, um, or for radiation, when they gave him radiation treatments. Seriously? Yeah. So it was like his wow. death mask is what he called it. And when he got done with that, before he had passed, he goes, here, use this in your haunted house. And so I had kind of blinged oh it out. Oh my gosh. Was that brain brain cancer? Was he getting brain scans or? No. Well, yeah, actually towards the end, it did. It did go up there. He's having seizures Gosh, and I'm stuff. I'm sorry. The cancer sucks. The, the construction of that mask is just stuck out to me. But Wow. that I had not heard of something like that, but that's, that's interesting. Random question number two. Is the feet tango a real project or is that something that was developed for this film? We just did it for this. And, 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 and the two <laughs> the sets of feet you see are the production designer and the second AD, who, who was like my assistant for years, a dear friend, Wesley and Noah is the, pr- and that's them. That's their feet. I'm like day one, you know, I was like, okay, guys, this is what we need. And they both had nice feet. So we're like, okay. <laughs> I had to ask, I was curious, like, is, was this like her, her, uh, you know, final project in videography in college or something? You know, you never know. It could have been right. So this is an important one. I don't know if, if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. At the at the very end of the film, does Jess does Jess click the right side or the left side of the screen? I think I know, at least my own opinion. Well, I want to hear from you guys what you think, right or left. Guys, what do you think? And I think left was be followed, right was followed. Yeah, I was about to say I forget which one was which, but I feel that she was going to continue on the way it was going already. You too, Brian? I see you shaking your head. I think I would have clicked the right side. <laughs> That's just my personal. I would have been like, no, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I can't live this life where I'm being followed. Right. 
And like I said before, then you have to do it to someone else. And it's her friend. Well, it was her, her friend that blew her off every time. Well, and that's why I said right or left. Cause I didn't know how much spoiler you wanted me to give away, but well, the- we might have to say big spoiler. Maybe we can add that in because <laughs> this is a huge spoiler. The one side, which I believe was the left side was to basically stay. Yeah. And that was where she would become a filmmaker in this. Uh, I f- kind of like screw my friend. I'm going to become this filmmaker, become famous. Or she clicked to the right. It was save her friend. Keep what I got going on. And I'll try to survive it, which would kind of be like the, the good guy, the white hat thing to do. And I'm watching it and I'm watching, I'm watching her eyes and her eyes, I believe went to the right of the screen, but she got that smirk. And again, I, I picked up throughout this whole movie that she was more like Luke than maybe Luke was at times. (laughs) And so my opinion is, is she said, screw my friend, I'm traveling down that path of fame. Well, if we ever get to make, we have a trilogy in mind. Danny always had a, a part two in mind. And I was like, screw part two. We got a trilogy. And there are, if we ever get to make it, there are some huge twists. Like you think you're watching one movie. And then at the, in the last like seven minutes of part two, you're like, oh my gosh, that everything was done for alternate, you know, alternate reasons. And, and then act three is like payback time. And so, I mean, not actually the third movie but we'll see it's almost impossible you know (laughs) to get to make those movies but we do have an idea so yeah i i know what we in our minds know she picked because of knowing what two and three were but i we specifically like when i was directing it on set i knew again i didn't want her to feel too victimized so that little smirk is either like it's definitely an f you kind of smirk it's also like kind of digging this kind of smirk like yeah you think you get can get me you can't or ooh, you know i get to go off and do this so we wanted to leave it vague so i'm going to be kind of one of those jerks and not really answer (laughs) (laughs) i can at least tell you offline what what why she picked a certain thing and what that big twist in two and three would be if we ever get to make them which i I would love to that's totally fine because if anything i hope that anybody who listens to this episode that we wet their palate enough to go watch this film uh again we all kind of live in the the mutant chainsaw maniac world but (laughs) uh, and this is more on the outer edges of a thriller but i tell you what i I recommend this movie to anybody i already have and a few people within 24 hours have watched it and got back to me like oh clint thanks for not recommending some weird movie from 72 that i'm gonna hate this movie's great (laughs) oh that's good to know yeah i have to say like it's a really hard time right now people don't realize how bad it is right now for indie filmmakers like it's in my lifetime it's never been worse unless you're one of those couple of films that wins the lottery and gets into like Sundance and you win like a big award which we did not you know we didn't get in or South by Southwest there's like two or three we got into so many other amazing festivals and I had like the most amazing year last year traveling to these incredible festivals hanging out with filmmakers like John and all these great people it's almost impossible to make money or even get your you know people paid back and because it's so hard to break through every week there's so many new movies coming out and a film like ours without stars you just get swallowed up so things like this and you guys you know I was like what if you guys hate the movie because I've listened to your podcast you're way more horror and I'm like you know I know some of the shitty you know reviews we've gotten on whatever are like we didn't satisfy their horror need we're down listed as a horror film and if you're looking for a blood and guts horror movie we are not your movie unless you're open-minded and you're like which you guys make me feel like you know what maybe solid real horror fans would give this a sh- you know a shot which I, I think 
they would, because I tell you what, uh, and I, I'm kind of repeating myself, but there was such a strong story and you guys littered it with all these cool flips and, and differences. We didn't just see the same old thing. You could almost, at one point I was watching the film um, and it was kind of towards the end where like the phone rings and then the doorbell rings and it, it kind of harkened back to some recent screams that we've seen, you know? So there's, there's a little bit enough there for your diehard horror fan to enjoy. And then the fact that it's such a solid story brings it home regardless. One, I think one of the things we, we talk about a lot, Jason, Clint, and I, is we are real deep into that 1972 Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, but my a lot of my family is not into that stuff. This is that horror movie that I can enjoy, and I sat down with my girlfriend last night and watched it. Because hmm. it's, it's horror enough that I will enjoy it, but it's not blood and guts where she wouldn't enjoy it. So you have a great path there where you're kind of feeling the need of horror fans, true crime fans, you know, that middle of the road there that it walks that will fill both people's imagination and make them both happy. Cool. You know, what's funny about that, Brian, is when I watched this, I thought Jason is kind of our more mainstream mainstay. And I thought this is, and usually we're forcing him to watch again, some really terrible, awful movie that no one <laughs> has ever heard of. And so I, I watch this and uh, Jason, you popped in my mind. I'm like, okay, this is new. It's fresh and it's mainstream enough, but not cookie cutter, repetitive bullshit, but it's mainstream enough where I thought Jason's really going to like this movie. So I wish I had uh, watched it with my wife, but she was sleeping. She had to work the next day. So I watched it with my daughter but now i'm definitely going to revisit it with my wife because i feel she'll enjoy it well thank you that's great you work so hard i've been working on this movie for five years <laughs> it's like crazy yeah it's you know not intense full time but it's been on i think i first read the script in 2018 and then we spent 10 months you know adapting it and just working on it and and i really wanted to i you know i really thought it's very modern but we could even make it more so i i, I think I, I think i came up with the whole idea of making it live streaming it was she wasn't initially going to be a live streamer it was gonna be more like the you know videotape and then bring it home but i was like ah it's so present if she's live streaming because also it screws her up because she's like ah, i can't deliver my show tonight everyone's waiting for it which makes her feel like it has to be even better explains why there's no Wi-Fi and and it, yeah it just kind of opened the door to, to do a lot of things by making her a live streamer. Well, you already answered my last question that was going to be about the sequel. You covered that, so we're eagerly anticipating more. I do want to kind of switch gears here real quick. I, I saw a, a mention in the credits, and it was in memory of John Andrew Gallagher, and I saw that was the one acting credit I mentioned earlier on his short. So I just I was curious who who John was, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, no, not at all. He he is pretty legendary indie New York City filmmaker. Um, he was also an acting teacher, and he was just such a big-hearted guy that loved actors and wanted to and loved filmmaking. And he was an encyclopedia of film. He could tell you like who was the boom operator and grip on like Rear Window. Like he just had this mind and of film, and he knew shots. He was a, a mentor of mine. The very first films I produced were his. He was the director, and he gave me a shot. And so I traveled the world with him, going to festivals, and. He he was on a podcast that Danny heard and said, oh, I want that guy to help me make my movie. And she called John or emailed him, got a hold of him. And basically, Danny, it's so funny. 
when she first started down the road of getting this movie made, she had, you know, been an actress and had done her YouTube series, but, you know, hadn't produced a film or been a big part in a film yet. She really thought we're going to make this movie for $100,000 and we're going to shoot, start shooting in six weeks. So she calls John and John is like, well, first off, I'm not, I can't switch gears and go right into pre-production and making the movie with you, but you should have a woman anyway, and you should talk to Sylvia. So we spoke immediately. I read the script and I was like, okay, well, first off, there's no way we're shooting in six weeks and there's no way we're making this movie for $100,000. We spent almost that just on the visual effects. And I said, look, you could make a movie in six weeks for 100000 but that's not the movie that I would want to make. And, and fortunately, you know, we saw eye to eye on that because, yeah, I can't imagine. Also, I'm too far down the road to ask people to work for free on a feature, you know, something if you're doing a short film or something. And I just knew that in today's world, if, it, if kids are going to be like, oh, that's bullshit. If the graphics look like crap, if, you know, we could have spent more. But, you know, we had a great Wild Union Post, this amazing post house in Brooklyn that does visual effects. Alex uh, Noble to anyone, any filmmakers that are looking for visual effects, talk to Alex Noble. But yeah, so so John introduced us. The sad thing is he passed, you know, before he didn't get to see the film, but he was one of those guys that saw the very first cut of the footage we shot with Luke Cook. So he got to see a rough cut of like 50 minutes of the movie. So he did get to see some of it. But yeah, we lost him tragically almost two years ago. Great guy. Just so you know, I'll be the scab and work on your next feature for free. <laughs> All right. Ooh. <laughs> I'll let you know. Where do you guys, where are you guys, where do you live? Where are you all from? So I'm, I'm from Michigan. Okay. And guys. I'm in Illinois, like Iowa, Illinois border. Yep. I'm uh, three hours south of Chicago. Clint's about six hours away from us, but I'm only about an hour from Jason. Oh, nice. Yeah, I kind of really want to get out Northwest. I, I love the Pacific Northwest. I love hiking and woods and mountains. And Yeah, you had talked about John Iceberg. He's about eh, an hour and a half from me. He's in Bloomington, Champ- Champaign area. So. Oh, neat. Okay. A lot of people here, you know, New York, Chicago, and I'm gifted because I have friends in Iowa that do film and John's in Illinois. And there's just a big indie community out this way. I'm actually going to a film festival that's a short film festival next oh, neat. Next week that my friend puts on. So Oh, that's great. Yeah, there are such amazing festivals across the country. Well, across the globe. I mean, there's a lot of great festivals in middle America and film festivals are so much. And I will say, so the next the next movie that I'm um, developing right now, way more horror. It's more straight horror. But not to say that I, I don't want to do any dramatic films. You know, it, it also is not a slasher, but there's definite. It's a more straight horror with more horror elements throughout. Well, I was going to say that based off your filmography, I don't see you slowing down anytime soon. And I was going to ask what what is next for Sylvia Kaminer. It walks among us. I'm doing it with a, a great producer, a guy named David Higgins, who produced one of my favorite films, Hard Candy. Have you guys seen mm-hmm. Hard Candy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such a good film. In fact, it's funny because I watched that film in preparation for. I'd already seen it, but I rewatched it um, in preparation for this film for Follow Her. And I'm also adapting this. I was sick over Thanksgiving. I was like, wasn't COVID? I was in bed like for three days. And my first, you know, I love Audible. It helps me sleep at night. So I listened to a book. Somehow, I don't even know how I found this book a British writer, it's called, and then she vanished. It's a sci-fi time travel series of books. There's four books are out and he's got three more coming. One hour into that book, I'm like, oh my God, I have to make this into a movie. And for the whole rest, I, I listened to the entire book, all 12 hours of it, probably in a, not like 24 hours. And then I listened to book two and book three. And by the time I was Sunday night,
night rolled around, you know, Thursday's where it started. I found the guy on Instagram, the novelist, and I messaged him. And thank God I had been posting. And so he's like, doesn't see someone with, not that I don't have many followers, but I have some and I have, he could say, oh, she's a filmmaker. There's proof. There's, you know, so he got back to me. We've been working together on it. So I am that, I'm so excited about that because it's like, if ever I'm going to make like a big Hollywood movie, but with real heart and that's the, it's a much more expensive film, but it's not crazy expensive. But yeah, so I'm really, we're hoping to have the script finished by the, you know, very soon. We can't really do much because of the writer's strike. We're not going to talk to any struck companies where I'm definitely in support of the writer's strike and God forbid SAG strikes, you know. So we're kind of at a place where we're going to have to stop and just sit tight. Even though we're not in the guild, you know, we're still going to respect that. But I think hopefully that'll be over soon. Uh, we also offer a tri-weekly news segment here and just kind of a brief news rundown of what's going on. Uh, last Friday's news episode I talked about, and I didn't realize this, but this has been the first time in 60 years where it's been a two union strike. It's not just the WGA that, you know, of course the actors are getting ready to get involved too. And then I thought to my, I thought to myself about the era of filmmaking that came out after that last strike and it was amazing. So I'm hoping this lets loose to a boom of more amazing films like yours. Follow her. Well, thank you. Yeah. I think what happens and that's why like this writer and I are like, Oh my God, we gotta get, we gotta keep writing. We gotta get this novel, like the script done is that what happens is all those brilliant writers are writing for themselves right now. They're all like, screw Hollywood. I can't work on this show. And there's a lot of great episodic. I would kill to be directing episodic. <laughs> That's how you make a living in this industry, you know, and not have to do 12 things. You know, I, I only work in the industry, but still, I would love to do focus really just on narrative. But all, so all those amazing writers are writing for themselves right now, passion projects, ideas. So when that strike is over, all those scripts are going to flood the market and the industry. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we need to be ready so that, because those are going to get snapped up. But yeah, it did lead to, and exciting. And and we sure as hell need to update. The whole system is really broken. Streamers, I mean, it's insane. And by the time it trickles to the filmmaker, it's absurd. It's totally absurd. That's why indie, it, there really is, I've even, you know, heard more experienced indie filmmakers saying that really, you can't make a living as an indie filmmaker. You have to go to get on episodic or, or do nonfiction, you know, which it shouldn't be, <laughs> but it is for now. Well, and currently we've, we've discussed it at length in the show here over the past couple months that at least in the horror genre, the indie world is the heart and soul. And it always kind of is, but right now it seems very front and center. The indie world is the heart and soul of, of our genre. Um, there's very little coming out established that's... Yeah, I know. I saw the Boogeyman, which I was kind of disappointed. Did you guys? I mean, did you like the Boogeyman? No, I didn't. I liked the first half, and I thought the girls were good, and I liked the actual play the tablet. It's like stop showing us that creature so much, and I don't know. Yeah, it lost me. Oh, I loved it, but I'm kind of partial. I'm partial because the filmmakers are from where I'm from here. Yeah, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was okay, and obviously brilliantly made. But you know which film I loved? Hollywood film, The Black Phone. Oh my God, that was such a nostalgic. I felt like I was a teenager again. I was like, oh my God, I love, I sat in the theater like, I love this movie. I loved that. I love Ethan Hawke, but I love that movie. That was one of my favorites. I liked it better than Smile, better than Barbarian. Yeah, if you haven't seen, have you all seen The Black Phone? Probably one of my favorite episodes that we've done on this podcast so far was covering that movie. Oh, such a great film. Oh my God. I just watched Evil Rise and I don't like to blast movies because, again, a really well-made film. It just reminded me that I'm really not into slashers. You know, less is more for me, but it was well done. You guys probably loved it. I was actually middle on the road. We were all kind of – Jason, I think uh... – 
I liked it a little more. Yeah. I'm, I'm easy to please. You know, it's a great that you guys may not have seen that. It's, you know, a social media film. So it's in, kind of in competition with my film, but I still love it. And I love the filmmakers. I met them in London at Fright Fest. Sissy. Have you guys seen Sissy? No. Oh, shit. You guys haven't seen Sissy. Put it down. Watch it. It's gone across my screen a couple times. And I'm like, hmm, that one, that one. I'm with you on that, though. And we have talked about this a lot. If you make a film, and even if I don't enjoy that film, I will try my hardest not to blast that film because I know somewhere someone put blood, sweat, tears, passion into this film. Right. No, thank you. And I think that that's really important because the way I look at it, you know, if you're judging a film or rating a film on IMDb or Amazon, they made a film. I can hear it. I can see it. They had actors, you know, now if every one of those is terrible, you know, so at least started at like a fifth to five, you know, like, you know, people that just hate a movie and they don't want, you know, you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, kindness is, you know, and I do think, look, that when you make movies, you do have to get thick skin. And I know this movie in particular, I was ready. I was definitely, I will say I was ready for people to either really like it or really hate it, you know, because it's the type of film that might get under your skin or if you, you know, if you're a social media person, I don't know what you would, you know, if you were an influencer, maybe you might take objection to it. Although Luke Cook, do you guys follow Luke Cook on Instagram? No, I just recently looked him up in preparation for this. He's freaking hysterical. So he is an influencer. So I'm like, ah, it's kind of okay because we got an influencer making fun of influencers. Yeah, he's got like a million followers on Instagram and he's so zany. He'll make you laugh if you just want to follow someone that you're just like, oh, this guy's insane. Luke Cook, the Luke Cook. Yeah. And if you get under that person's skin, you did it right. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you push buttons on people, you did it right in the movie then. If you have people that are like, oh, that's not how Instagram works. Oh, so I got, mm. I got you. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm going to remember that, Brian. I'm going to remember that next time I hear about some trashy comment. <laughs> I'll be like, ah, this just means I got to him. You still watched my movie, didn't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. Speaking of watching the movie, where can people go to watch Follow Her? And are you going to be hitting, hitting any um, film festivals with that with also? Well, so, you know, we could still hit some international festivals, although the movie has come out in some places international. Um, it's so funny. We had a Ukrainian distributor who somehow put the movie out in Ukraine and Russia. I'm like, that's weird. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, well, I felt a little conflicted about it, but I'm like, are you sure? And, the, and our sales agent was like, it's a Ukrainian company. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we can't really play film festivals anymore. And the movie did have a slight theatrical release. It played in LA and a few cities, but we didn't push it at all. We're like, ah, we didn't have the money to really push that. You do that so that it gets the word out and you get maybe better placement. But really the place we've been pushing is Amazon because Amazon is like the place to go. You know, it's also available on Apple and Voodoo. And if you are one of those old school people and you only have cable and you don't do this, it's on all the cable, Bright House, whatever those cable things are. I only recently, a year ago, got rid of my cable. You know, so you can kind of find it anywhere. And if you do like it, give it a nice rating on Amazon or, you know, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes. It all really does make a difference, especially because, you know, we're trying to get a, you know, a streaming deal next, you know, down the road, a few months down the road. Maybe it'll end up on Shutter. I don't know that it fits that model because it's not horror enough. I don't know. But, you know, maybe Hulu or who knows. I could see it on Shutter. Uh, yeah, I looked up the Rotten Tomato number two and I didn't write it down, but I want to say it was currently at 67 or it was high 60s, low 70s. No, it's 77. 
Trust me, I do. I do keep an eye on that because it's, I'm like, and, and I first off don't understand how those numbers work, especially like in the fan ones. I'm like, we all have two negative reviews. Everyone else is so good. And why are we, it's so weird. It's like, uh, uh, you got to let it go. As long as we stay on that orange and we don't turn to green, you know, which happens. And there's movies on there that I like that I'm like, oh my gosh, how did that movie get rotten? Like it just, I don't know. I wish it didn't matter. It's funny. I was talking to my sister. I know I'm going off topic here, so you can always cut this, but they run a boat business. And she's like, Sylvia, reviews are our life. We care so much about our customers and one or two people come in and for whatever reason, they leave you a, you know, a a bad review and it follows you for the rest of your life. It only takes one or two. I used to run a haunted house for years and it was that one or two bad reviews. But an interesting take, what we started doing on that was instead of trying to cater to it and being worried about it, we just kind of challenged it head on and we were kind of jerks to the people. Because nine times out of 10, someone who's going to take the time to give you a bad review, regardless if it's a boat tour, a film or a haunted house, it's they were in a bad mood. Totally. It has nothing to do with you. You were just there at the wrong place, wrong time. And you can kind of weed that out and people can see, okay, this is bullshit. You know, it's still a great product. Where can people stay in touch with you and see what you have going going on to see about sequels coming out and the horror film you're working on. and Absolutely. So on Instagram, my production company is Dolger Films. My mom and dad's name, Dolores and Gerald. Uh, I named it after them. So Dolger Films is where you find me on Instagram and then on Twitter and Facebook for whoever does Facebook. Um, Sylvia Kaminer, just my name. And then follow her film. It's follow her at follow her film every across all, including the new Instagram Twitter thing. <laughs> Which I don't, I don't, I'm like, I'm not looking at that right now. Two things are for absolute certain, and that this film, Follow Her, is much more erotic and psychotic, but yet somehow manages to be safely viewable to a much broader audience than the last film we covered. Sylvia, have you ever seen Demoniacs from 1974? I have not. It's a French film from Jean Roland. Did you guys love it? Is that why you were. <laughs> All of you, one of you love and the others hate it or you all kind of, it's insane. Okay. No. Like so bad it's good. Do I need to go watch it or no, not really. No, no. Okay. No. <laughs> no. That was kind of, the, kind of the joke in the little tie-in. It's actually such a contrast from the last film that we watched. So that probably helped us. That You know, we, you're comparing us to that. So. <laughs> that's funny. The second thing that's absolute certain is uh, Follow Her is a smart, sexy, relevant thriller that you should do yourself the favor of watching today. You know what else is smart and sexy and relevant? Our podcast network, the PFPN. So let's hear from them. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening So now that we've heard from our podcast network, it's time for This Day in Horror History. A date which will live in infamy. (laughs) 
So on the days following this episode of the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast, we got some pretty juicy stuff. End of October was kind of a downer, and now it's starting to pick up again. So on November 13th, 1950, or 1933, 1933, shit, The Invisible Man came out. Then in 1981, Saturday the 14th. Saturday the 14th. I love that movie. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, 1987, this is a movie we both love. The Running Man. Yeah, and that movie, we keep kicking the can down the line because of other things, but I would love, well, we both would love to talk about that. Great movie. Uh, 1992, Bram Stoker's Dracula. 1998, I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's one of those 90s, you know, we tried to get the slasher genre going again. I mean, I had three or four offshoots after the fact. I, I loved Urban Legends. Of course, Scream was massive. There were some other ones that aren't coming to mind, but I remember there were others that I enjoyed that I just did not. I could not get behind that franchise. And Urban Legend didn't get several sequels, did it? I think there's three, but I think as it went on, I think it kind of got more indie it was just kind of people like no one wanted the rights, you know, no one wanted the namesake. So someone bought it and said, Oh, I'll put this out, you know, direct a video or something like that. Yeah. The second one was like specific, like I think it was urban legends, bloody Mary, I think, or something like that. And then the third one, I don't even remember. And then, Oh, in 1935, November 13th, 1935, Tom Atkins is born Halloween three creep show. Tom Atkins, I love you, but he's born in 35. I better hurry up and get his autograph here pretty soon. Yeah, you better. I actually have it on a, uh, I met him a few years back at Motor City Nightmares, and I got, it's on a, you know, a, a table photo that he had. And then we uh, jumped to November 16th, 1977, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, I've never seen that all the way through. If I had, it's been so long that I forgot it. All I remember is the mashed potato mountain scene, and there was something else. Where I think Richard Dreyfus was like at the table. I think it was Richard Dreyfus, and he was making. And then in uh, 1984, Night of the Comet. I've seen that a time or two. That movie's so damn cool. We did two episodes on it. And then uh, also in 1984, A Nightmare on Elm Street. That would have been a good double feature day at the you know at the local drive-in theater. Well, and if anybody hasn't, and if you don't know, go back and listen to the Night of the Comet and Night of the Comet bonus fun facts episode because there was actually a lot of connections between. Night of the Comet and Nightmare on Elm Street. And then in 1928, so November 16th, 1928, Clue Gallagher is born. Return of the Living Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And then he was in Feast 1, 2, and 3. I think it was his son's directorial debut. So he was in all three of those movies. That first one was that Project Greenlight with uh, Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon. And I think it was, was it A&E or IFC or Bravo is one of those. I, did you Did you see those? I saw the first two. Yeah, I mean, they were good. I enjoyed the first one. The second, the second, I haven't seen the third. The second one where he throws the baby up in the air as he's running from the monsters. And you're like, oh, no. And then, like, you see the baby splat on the concrete. You're like, holy shit, this is terrible. Then uh, November 21st, 1931, Frankenstein. And then in 2007, The Mist. One of the saddest endings in film history. Even outside of horror movies. I mean, you're just like, what the fuck? The scariest to me scene in that movie was when they finally left the uh, grocery store and they went to like the pharmacy next door or something like that. And all the spiders were there and had, he's like half alive. He's like, kill me. And the spiders burst out of him or whatever. Oh God. Makes me want to just cover my eyes and throw up. I don't like spiders. So yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't mind spiders, but a million of them bursting out of a half alive human is something different. That's scary. 
That's how a uh, Kingdom of the Spiders started, right? Or ended or something like that? No. No, you don't think so? You don't think how that's how it would have been under all those webs that there was people with spiders just growing inside of them? No, I guess you're right. Yeah, because they had a whole bunch of people cocooned. Hey, there's another great one. Go back and listen to our Kingdom of the Spider episode. Wow, this is an episode of plugging old episodes. This is great. We haven't covered this movie, though, but I threw it on the list. November 26th, 1965, Gamera. Just because I love Godzilla and Gamera and Kaiju movies. And Gamera is pretty kid-friendly. You know, if you have kids, want to introduce them to some gateway horror, put on Gamera. It's fun. I'm glad that you're a fan because, again, I'm just not. No big deal. I'm, you know, whatever. Because of you and, like, Brian Clark and stuff, I know enough to know when people bring it up what's going on. So in the season four of Creep Show, Boots and I sat down and finally watched the first episode. And the very first episode, this woman is having a conversation with this giant rat mouse monster. And they're talking about Godzilla and Kaiju. And it was because of that, I was, I because of knowing you, I was able to follow along. If I didn't, I'd be like, oh, what the fuck are they talking about, you know? Giant rat monster, huh? It was interesting. It was kind of quirky, but it was fun. It was different. Isn't Creepshow like that, though? You feel like you get ebb and flow. You get some that are really good and some you're like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, you get everything. Some are are really, um, some are very A24-ish. Some are very scary. Some are very uh, corny. Some are very mainstream. The first two I've seen were A24-ish and a little quirky. So what we got going on in November? October's over. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's find out what's going on. So it's middle of November. Thanks Killing's coming out soon. That'll be fun. You know, the Eli Roth fake trailer made into a movie. Um, other than that, and I know this isn't really horror, but the Orpheum is showing the Muppet Christmas Carol on November 17th. Christmas Carol's got the ghosts in it, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I love the Muppets, so it's free. I'm going to go see that. Tiffany's like, I don't know that I'll go. I was like, I am going. I love the Muppets. You know, other than that, really have anything. I wonder if Uncle Deadly from the Muppets is going to play one of the ghosts. I think he does. So other than the Muppets, the only thing new that we have is we have a new subcast of the podcast coming out. More? We're putting out more content? More free content. This will put us up to 19. You know, I just set up the Orpheum at the end of October and people were like, oh, what's your show about? And I was like, we put out 18 different kinds of content a month. And they're like, what? I was like, yeah, you every day you can put on the I Like It Spooky Horror podcast and you're going to almost get something new. And one lady was like, oh, that's that's perfect for folding laundry and doing dishes. And we don't have a name yet. We do have what it's going to be, though, is we've been thrown a lot of independent movies, comic books, books, records, you know, bands that have kind of given us stuff. And it's not enough for a full episode, but it's enough that we can highlight them and have another subcast. We're still working on the name, but by this recording, we might have a name. We might not. Hell, we don't know. Yeah, it's actually kind of scary. Brian and I are starting to kind of morph into the man with two brains because it was a couple of days after this independent film artist sent us a clip of his movie and said, and I saw it and it's not that I disliked it, but I was just kind of like, I don't know if that's going to kind of fit into the direction that we've been taking the show. So a couple of days afterwards, I got a hold of Brian and I says, hey, I says, 
we should do another subcast, just focus on independent artists. And you were like, I literally just like 10 minutes ago was walking out of picking up Finley, I think it was or something and, and thought the same damn thing. And I'm like, Woo. yeah, look for this. What here about a week or so after this episode. Um, and I think we're even going to be joined by Leah from Mishmash. So you guys might get to hear her and she's going to outshine us because she's got that great radio voice. Well, what really happened is you said, I have an idea. Just know that I have an idea. And I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? It was like six in the morning. I didn't. <laughs> I made him wait all day. Yeah. The next day I was like, are you going to tell me now or tomorrow or when we record next? What, what, when do I get to hear about this? We called each other and I was like, yeah, I was just walking out of picking Finley up and was like, how can I, how can we do this to highlight all this stuff? I call you and that was like the first thing. Hey, we do this new subcast. We could do. And I was like, I was just thinking about what the hell. This is scary for the world. But yeah, so we're going to be up to, like you say, 19 different episodes. Some are feature length. Some are five to 10 minutes, like, uh, like spill the guts, but it's all different stuff. And I I think we're kind of maxed out. If we decide to add anything else besides a bonus episode every once in a while, we might just have to like, I don't know, hire some interns. Are you watching me? Are there cameras on us? Is this like follow her? I need to go put on my tinfoil helmet. Grab me one while you're out, would you? Well, don't ask me what I got going on because now that you got me all freaked out about that, I'm not <laughs> going to say what I'm doing. I don't want anybody to know. They already know. It's just like follow her. They already know. So I've got a few things going on. When this episode comes out, I'm either going to be at day three of Monster Mania in yeah, Philly, or I'm not going to be. I'm booked for the show. I don't like to book shows and not go. I screwed up and have not booked my hotel room. And I tried to book it a couple days prior to this recording and all the blocks are already used up. And so I'm doing the math on the full rate of the rooms. And I'm like, when you go to any show as a vendor, it's a gamble. I've established for myself, I know what I'm on average, what I'm going to make. And that's what I have to base my decisions off of. Sometimes I fall short. Sometimes I far exceed. So it's always a gamble and I really want to go, but I don't think I'm going to, because I think it's going to wind up being one of those pay to play scenarios. Completely my fault. There's just been so much going on that I just never booked the damn room. So hate to bail on shows, but so I'm either going to be coming home, you know, finishing up day three of Monster Mania and coming home, or I'm not going to be going. Holiday season, day job, UPS, it's that time of year again. Anybody knows UPS, the post office, FedEx, all carriers during the during the Christmas months um, or Christmas. Well, I say months because it's always like middle of November to kind of like the first or second week of January. Um, it's balls to the wall. So I'm going to be working like a complete idiot, making money hand over fist to buy kids shit they don't need. And that's about it. There, there was one more thing that I told you last episode. I'd tell you about this episode, but I've been talking so much about myself this episode. I'll, I'll wait till the next one. Get them come back. You got them on the hook. Reeling them in real slow. Like they do in deep sea fishing, you know. You can't just go real fast. They're too heavy. You got to crank, crank, crank. Give a little slack. Crank, crank, crank. Give a little slack. I think at this point you got like three barrels on them. You know, like in Jaws. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They can't go down with three barrels on them. Uh, I guarantee you that... This news, especially if you live in Michigan, but not specifically, but especially if you live in Michigan, um, it'll be big news and hopefully something that everybody can enjoy. So tune in next episode. I swear on my my father's grave, come hell or high water, I will let you know what I got going on. If you don't live in Michigan, start planning vacations now. Well, maybe not now, but yeah. You might want to now. Yeah. I might even have a place or 13 for you to stay. 
13, huh? Interesting. That's a lucky number. Yeah. So now that we've talked about why we're poor and the news, the amazing movie, follow her horror history and what we're up to or what we might be up to and who's watching us. Don't forget to watch the I like it spooky horror podcast or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, threads, I almost said Tinder, and I was like, we're not on fucking Tinder. Oh. Yeah. Maybe we will be one day. We keep uh, buying all this shit. We're going to all be looking for a new place to live. Good thing Clint might have somewhere for us to go. Check us out on all of our social medias, and take care. Bye-bye. Hey, don't forget to check out Follow Her. Follow Her is now available at Paramount+. Plus. Showtime, of course, you can uh, rent it. Oh, it's also available on Hulu now. Uh, you and then you can get it on Amazon Prime, Vudu. We want to thank uh, Sylvia Kaminer again and Jason indirectly for coming back to haunt us this episode. Check out the movie; you will not be disappointed. Till next time. Hey, what's wrong with you, man? Show some fucking respect for the dead, will ya?